gospel, this good news to us, if it is indeed true, if the Father is as merciful as the scriptures say he is, if he is as just and as kind as these writers have noted in the Old and New Testament, then he is worthy of more than just our lip service. He is worthy of worship from our very hearts and from our very souls, from our very insides. Because of who God is and because he has saved us, let's worship him together in spirit and in truth. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I'll read these. Let's remain standing together. And these are the very words of God. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Redeemer Church, what do you believe about God's Word? You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, would the words of my mouth and would the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, you, O Lord, who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, friends, I cannot remember the last 3D movie I saw, but I will never forget the first 3D movie I ever saw. I was in elementary school and it was the old black and white film, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. And admittedly, I don't remember much about the movie. I was more fascinated and more interested in this new piece of technology, these 3D glasses. I did that thing where I reached out in front of them and, and, and tried to touch the movie. Maybe you did that the first time you saw a 3D movie. I was mesmerized how one little tiny piece of technology could take discord that could take up this jumbled image just to the naked eye up on the screen and, screen and make, it, make it into harmony. Make it into this living image with depth and with beauty. And sometimes 
if we allow it, a certain scripture or a passage from the Bible will do the same thing to us and for us. Maybe it's uh, through a sermon or maybe through a private reading of the scriptures. We walk away from it going, now that makes sense. Where once I was confused, now there is, there's understanding. Now I, I think I get it. Oftentimes, friends, and maybe you feel this way, this Christian life, like what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live, it often feels like watching a 3D movie without the glasses. It feels jumbled up. For example, the scriptures say, rejoice greatly in the, in the Lord. Rejoice without ceasing. But at the same time, Jesus tells us, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Be happy, and there's going to be sorrow. Be joyful, but there's going to be pain. More particularly in our passage this morning, what Jesus is, is calling us and commanding us to do is to not fear man, but at the same time, man can take your life. How do we do both? How do these two commands, how do these two initiatives actually come together into harmony and beauty? And if we'll let it, this morning, what the Lord is going to do through his writer, Luke, is he's going to give us a pair of glasses. What need not happen this morning is our circumstances to change. That's not what is happening here in this passage. What we need is our perspective to change. What do we believe about judgment? What do we believe about the fear of the Lord? And what do we believe about the fear of man? This is how the Lord is going to reorient us this morning. So if you're keeping notes, just three points as it pertains to our perception, our understanding of God's judgment. I want to look at the cause of judgment. I want to look at the real judge. And then lastly, what is our hope in this judgment? I do believe those are printed for you in the sermon notes section. Well, first, what is the cause of this judgment? We need to begin this morning by understanding as best we can the context of our passage Chapter 12 begins with a lot of hype and a lot of energy. We believe that this is probably one of the moments in Jesus' ministry where he's at his, the height, the zenith of his popularity, right? In verse 1, we read and we find out that people are flocking to Jesus like shoppers do on Black Friday at 6 o'clock in the morning. Not only is there a large crowd, but, but look what the verse says. Look back at verse 1. It says they're trampling one another to get to Jesus. We're at the height of his popularity among the crowds and among the peoples. The news is getting out. The lepers are being healed. The blind can now see. The lame can now walk. Those who have been plagued by a demon, now these demons are being cast out. Now everybody wants to see and experience this Jesus. But what the disciples don't know and what Jesus knows is that he is now turning and posturing himself towards Jerusalem, towards his death, a place of great suffering. He's going to endure a number of the things that he describes in this very passage. He's going to be tempted to deny the Father before men. He's going to go before hypocrites, scribes, and Pharisees and be mocked and be scorned. And when he goes before these priests... And these scribes, when he goes before Pilate, he's going to need the Spirit to give him words to say. He's going to endure everything that we as humans have to endure. 
And when your death is on the doorstep, not somebody else's, but your very own death, that has a way of sobering your conversations, doesn't it? When you're coming to the end of your life, you don't talk about trivial things anymore. You start to get serious and you start to get sober. And that's exactly what's happening in this passage. Amidst the popularity, amidst the glory of a number of people getting healed, joy, happiness, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows the valley is ahead. He knows sorrow and suffering are not far behind. So he talks to us about this judgment. In the midst of great popularity, he talks about pain and suffering. And every pastor knows if you want to thin out a crowd, all you have to do is preach on hypocrisy, right? And that's exactly what he does. He first takes up this topic of hypocrisy. And now maybe for you, like it has been for me, it's been a while since I've visited this topic. So let's redefine it together this morning. Whether you've been inside the church or maybe you haven't been inside the church, maybe you're here just exploring the claims of Christ. Most of us have some sort of working definition of what hypocrisy is. And it sounds something like this. It's to say one thing and then to do another. Most of us would agree in this room that that's kind of our definition of hypocrisy, right? What I would suggest this morning is that's actually a better definition of what it means to lie or bear false witness. Hypocrisy is actually something a little bit deeper and just a little bit different. And to illustrate it, I'm actually going to go to one of Jesus' teachings in Matthew 23. Now, he's speaking to the Pharisees and he's speaking to the scribes and he calls them hypocrites because they're doing something. And what are they doing? They're doing a very good thing. They're tithing. They're not just tithing their money. They're not just tithing their income, but they're tithing even their produce, their mint and their dill. And he says, you hypocrites. And we ask, why in the world would Jesus call them hypocrites when they're doing a very good thing? Jesus explains. He says it's because you're ignoring the weightier matters of the law. You're focusing and you're occupying yourself with the, with the lesser and the lighter matters of the law at the expense of the weightier matters of the law. And he tells you what those things are. It's faithfulness. It's mercy and justice. You're not doing those things. But you're tithing your mint and your dill. You're hypocrites. It's to occupy ourselves with the lesser and the lighter matters of the law and not the weightier matters here when Jesus describes. Here's how it looks for us. Here's our modern interpretation. Maybe when you're on the road, people who don't obey the traffic laws, maybe they just get under your skin. And that just makes you burn. So you've made this vow. And when it comes to traffic laws, you are going to stop at every stop sign. And not just stop, you're going to give it the full three seconds. And you like to tell people that this is how you drive. And you do this every time. Is that a bad thing? No. It's a very good thing. But you're also a business owner. And one of your employees comes to you and says, hey, your manager is, is harassing or discriminating against me. And rather than taking it through HR because you know it's going to be a lengthy and expensive and arduous process, you just pay the person off and say, hey, sounds like you're leaving. Can I just give you a severance? Can you just go your own way? And can we just call things square with the house? Is that just? No. What Jesus tells us is there is a spiritual form of hypocrisy, a spiritual religion that looks like Christianity, but underneath it wears, it wears this badge of Christianity, but underneath 
It ignores the weightier matters of the law like justice. Where is justice for that employee? We don't know, but we stop at every stop sign. That's the lighter matter of the law. Maybe you're a student, and maybe you've caught some of your peers cheating in school, and that just burns you up. And what you have decided and what you have vowed is that in your entire educational career, you are never going to cheat, not on one piece of homework and not on one test. And you love telling other people about it. Is this a good thing, to refrain from cheating? Absolutely. And we ought to be doing that. But that new student that comes to your school, you've never reached out and you've never welcomed that student. And that outcast, the one that gets made fun of all the time, do you defend them? And do you stand up for them? Do you offer them deeds of mercy, these weightier deeds of the law? If not, and if at the same time you're parading your integrity at school, and you know what Jesus says? You too fall under that category of hypocrite. We occupy ourselves with the lesser matters of the law and not the weightier matters. And friends, this is this sickness. This illness is not a disease that only certain people or just the Pharisees struggle with. This, this disease is actually genetic. It's within all of us. It's like leaven. If it spreads and if it gets into a fresh batch of bread, that batch must be thrown out because now it's contaminated. It's tainted. And it must be thrown out. Very sobering thought. Is it not? And remember, we've just left the Pharisees' house in chapter 11. There's no Pharisees at the beginning of chapter 12 from what we can understand, from what we can see from this passage. It's just the disciples and the crowds. He's not talking to Pharisees. Who's he talking to? Normal, average Joes like you and me. That's who can struggle with this. It's not just the Pharisees. It's genetic within all of us. Here's the great lie of hypocrisy. Deep down, we know it. We know that we are occupying ourselves with the lighter matters of the law, not the weightier things. We like the way it feels when people respect us, when people look at us and go, man, that person is devout. That person must truly love the Lord. Look at how they are living their lives. We like how that feels. But inside, we're hypocrites. We may fool ourselves. We may fool our community, but there's one person who can't be fooled. Did you notice in verse 2 and 3? Notice what Jesus says. He's actually reading these verses autobiographically. He's saying, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden that will not be known. Whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you've whispered in private shall be proclaimed from the housetops. The lie of hypocrisy is, is that you can get away with it. You can keep your hypocrisy a secret. And what Jesus is telling us here through himself, through his ministry, and through his word is that there are no secret sins. It will be known. Maybe hidden from me, maybe hidden from our community, but it will be known to him. He is the judge, not just of our behaviors, not just of our outward appearance, but of our very hearts. He knows us and can see us better than we can even see ourselves. That's almost a scary thought, isn't it? He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our hypocrisies. And they are made known before Him. But not only is He the judge of our hearts, 
of our behaviors, of our motives. He's also the ultimate judge of our very souls. I'm jumping now to the second point. This passage tells us that there's two ways to look at judgment. And one way is the way of the world. And what does that look like? This is the wrong way. Verse 4 illustrates. Let's look at that again together. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more than they can do. Here's what the world says about judgment. Here's what the world says about our soul. It's that when you die, when your body suffers from death, your soul also dies. There is nothing after that. Death is the very end. And if that is true, if the if death of the body is the death of your very soul, then that means whoever has the power to take your life is your judge. And you should fear that man or that person. Man, Jesus gets us here, doesn't he? We often give this kind of allegiance. We give this posture to our fellow man. We let them judge our approval. We let them judge our favor. We let them judge, ultimately, our very souls. And what Jesus here is telling us is that there is only one righteous and perfect judge, one true judge, and that's he himself. It's not the world. It's not man. And we know this because we have the rest of the scriptures. What happens to us after this body, this shell, dies? Does our soul die? No, it does not. Either we go into eternal communion with him or eternal separation. Did you hear that in verse 5? It is Jesus who has the very power over our souls. He either casts us into eternal communion with him or eternal separation from him. So not only does he judge our behaviors, our, our motives of our hearts, but he's actually the judge of our very souls. And this is a lot of power for one man to have. This might cause you, if you're hearing this for the first time, to fear Jesus. So much so that the thought of him actually scares you. But is there any kind of hope in judgment? If God knows us better than, than we know ourselves, if he knows our secret hypocrisies, and if he alone has the power to cast us into eternal fellowship with him or eternal separation, what is he going to do with us? Because we're all hypocrites. None of us can live up to our own code and our own standard. Where's the good news? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start at the crown and I'm going to work our way down to the roots. So I'm going to go a little bit backwards. Look at the end of this passage, verse 12. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. One of the wonders of the second half of the New Testament is how God, through His Holy Spirit, now dwells within us. Allow me to trace the presence of God with His people throughout all of Scripture. It starts in the Garden of Eden where God and His people dwell together. And then what happens? There's sin, there's rebellion, and eternal separation. We're cast out of the garden. But then God's presence shows up in this, in this bush that's on fire. And then God shows up again in, in, this, in this pillar of cloud, this pillar of flame that's leading people out of slavery. And then He gives us this tent of meeting this tabernacle, this temple, this heaven on earth, this place that connects heaven and earth together where God dwells and where He resides. And then we get to the Gospels in the New Testament and God is no longer among us. God takes on flesh and He dwells in our very presence, no longer in a building, but in a person. 
The Lord Jesus Christ, He's coming near. And He's coming close. But then He's killed. And He's placed in a tomb. He rises. But then He ascends into heaven. The presence of God is gone forever. Right? Wrong. What does He promise? He promises His helper. His paraclete. The Holy Spirit. Right? The temple curtain is torn in two. The temple itself is rendered inert. Why? Because he says, you now, believer, if you have rested and received in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, on your behalf, you, no longer brick and mortar, you are now a temple of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit resides within your very chest. And that should blow our minds. Here's why I say that. What is the Holy Spirit responsible for? in the Holy Scriptures. From the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, He is an active agent in creation. It is by His words, by His whisper, that everything that we know and see is created. It's by His power. He creates everything out of nothing. Fast forward. Somehow, the Holy Spirit, through His power, we don't know how. He takes the pre-existent Jesus and He puts Him into Mary's womb. How does He do it? We have no clue. But by His power, He does it. And after Jesus is killed and He's placed in the tomb for three days, He is dead as a doornail. There's no blood running through His veins, no oxygen in His lungs. He's coated. But somehow, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is raised back not just to life, but to new life, glorified life. Who gets the credit for that? The Holy Spirit. Friends, do you see it? What Jesus is saying here is that now that He has left, He has given you a helper, one with limitless power, and He is residing within your very chest. Implications meaning meaning what? The question is not then what can He do? The question is what can't He do? Amen? What can't He do? If He has limitless power, what can He not do within you? Friends, your hypocrisy is deeper than you know. It's deeper than you know. God knows it. And what is He going to do with that hypocrisy? Is He going to rake you over the coals? Is He going to parade you in front of Himself or the holy angels? No. What is He going to do? Did you notice? Verse 10. If you speak a word against the Son of Man, He'll forgive you. He will wash you clean. Friends, the good news of the gospel is this. God doesn't love you because you're clean. After he's washed you, he doesn't look at you and go, ah, now I can love you because you're clean and I like clean things. No, it's because of his great love for you. His deep, rich, faithful, committed and covenantal love for you and because he wants to be with you forever And if holiness and unholiness are going to have fellowship with one another, there has to be a washing, there has to be a cleansing, there has to be forgiveness of sins. And because He loves you, He washes you. And He cleans you. So you can be one forever. He knows your secret hypocrisies. He loves your very soul. And He wants to be with you forever. So what does He do? Where does He use His power? He uses it to wash you whiter than snow. He doesn't stop there. He promises in verse 8 to acknowledge us. 
This word acknowledge means to connect yourself to. To address. To sing praise over. To love and commit yourself to. He promises to acknowledge us, to remember us. Maybe you remember what it, like, what it feels like to be forgotten or rejected or abandoned. That's not what God is going to do with you. He's going to acknowledge you before His Father and before the heavenly courts. Even though you've forgotten Him, He will acknowledge you. He also reminds you that you have great value. Look at verse 7. Actually, verse 6 and verse 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you have more value than many sparrows. How, do we, how does he know how many hairs are on your head? It's because he dwells within you. And sparrows were at the bottom of the pecking order. They're only worth a couple pennies. And if his mind, and if his attention, and his love is on the least of these, the sparrows, you know what he says to you? Though you're worthy to be judged and though you're worthy of separation from Him, His love is so great and His value over you is so strong and is so rich, He will not forget you. And He will keep you. That's the good news of our hope in judgment. If you're here this morning and maybe you don't have a, a history in church, maybe you're here exploring the claims of Christ and you're here with doubts and questions, let me be the first, and I hope not the last, to say you are most welcome. This is the right place to be with questions, with wonderings about this gospel of Jesus Christ. What is he going to do with me? What is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ? There's a passage here I want to draw our attention to. It's the second part of verse 10. It's very sobering. He says, But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is the unforgivable, unpardonable sin that the church has been talking about for a long time. How do you summarize this verse in a short, in a short paragraph? It's, it's hard. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine we have a business owner, one who owns a business. And he leaves, and he leaves his manager in charge. This manager is in charge of all the employees. If the employees rebel against the manager, who ultimately are they rebelling against? If the owner puts the manager in charge, are they not ultimately rebelling against the owner himself? And that's what Jesus here says. He says, you may, you may deny me, Christ the King of all kings, and that will be forgiven of you. But if you deny or blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, this agent who I've left here on this earth, to take what God the Father has promised and what Jesus has personified and how the Holy Spirit applies it to you and, 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 and makes it applicable in your very soul, in your very life, if you deny Him, the one whom Christ has, spent, has sent, the very Spirit of Christ, there is no life. There is no good news. There is no belief. The Spirit, the one with limitless power, is the one who animates us, who gives us energy, who gives us strength, who helps us feel forgiven. Not just know we're forgiven, but feel forgiven. If you deny Him, if you blaspheme against Him, there is no life. There is no gospel. But for you, here's the good news. 
Today for you can be the day of salvation. It doesn't have to be tomorrow. It doesn't have to be next Sunday. It doesn't have to be next, one, next month. And why is that the case? Because all you have to do to be saved is to call upon the name of the Lord. Rest in His work. Receive His work on your behalf. Ask Him for the full forgiveness of sins, sins known and sins unknown. And you know what He'll do? Because He's the judge of your heart and your motives, and because He's the judge of your very soul, in that moment, today, in that very moment, He will save you. Those who call upon Him will be saved. Fear Him. Because He alone has the power over your soul, not man. Christ alone. Let's pray together. Our great Father of lights, would you give us what you require of us? We want holy lives. We want to be rid of our hypocrisies. We want to be rid of our sins and our appetites and our addictions. And we need a power greater than ourselves to do that. So would you attend to us? Would you give us clean hands? Would you give us holy lives? Would you strengthen us in our inner man? Would you cause us to conform to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ? And would you draw from our dead lips praise and glory and honor both now and forevermore? For we ask it in the matchless name of Christ, our brother and Savior. Amen.